Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 156. Today we are going to be talking about. <laughs> I'm going to be. I'm going to be talking about, uh, uh, and I'll explain everything in a moment. But uh, I'm going to be talking about sex and cinema, porno chic, and the interesting history and status of the adult film. Uh, now rated NC-17. And uh, we are going to have the whole gang back, God willing, knock wood. I hope in the next week or two, we're all going to reassemble for the conversations that you have known. By the time that you hear this, it'll be Friday, uh, October 6th. We have officially started our Halloween-a-thon. And tonight we are showing The Skin I Live In. Pedro Almodovar's The Skin I Live In on 35mm at the Secret Movie Club Theater. This is one of my favorite Almodovar films. It's much more than the poster would lead you to believe, which is a riff on George uh, Franju's Eyes Without a Face. Although it has elements of that. But uh, it really becomes, as all of Almodovar's movies do, a mishmash of genre and examination of sexuality and identity. Uh, it's amazing. And Antonio Banderas is, is a, a fascinating anti-hero in it. Uh, Saturday, October 7th, we are going to be showing a, a triple of Alfred Hitchcock movies to continue our Alfred Hitchcock Director of the Year. We are showing on 35 Torn Curtain, Frenzy, and Family Plot. That's going to be our late period Hitchcock day. Torn Curtain starts at 4 p.m. Frenzy is 7.15. And I believe Family Plot is 9.45 or 10. Just check the calendar. Next Wednesday, we do our Secret Movie Club Filmmaking Workshop. Uh, the writer slots are totally filled, uh, and the actor slots are actually filling up fairly quickly, too. If you'd love to do that, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. We do have a few performer slots, actor slots left. We are beginning a year-long process by which we're going to be doing monthly workshops, and then probably every, se uh, every season, one night of staged readings. Uh, and then we're going to pair up filmmakers and actors and, and cinematographers and editors, have them go out and shoot the scenes that have been polished, and then do a, a kind of showcase. And then on Thursday, October 12th, we are showing also both on 35mm uh, two documentaries that I love, two of my favorite documentaries of the last uh, 30 years, Crumb by Terry Zweigoff about underground comic book artist uh, Robert Crumb and his two brothers. It's incredibly unsettling. It's not only the look at a, a, a really fascinating, complex artist, it's also a look at his complex family. His two brothers have tons of talent, but deal with mental health issues that clearly are crippling to them. Uh, and uh, I don't want to say anything more than that, but it's amazing. And then uh, we're showing American movie about Mike Shank and, and Mark Borchardt, uh, who Mark uh, is working to make his feature film, Coven. Uh, he refuses to call it Coven. He calls it Coven. Uh, and uh, he's making a horror film in, so that he, he has a grand plan. It, it, it is really a great humanist. It's a very funny documentary. But if you're a filmmaker, the laughter hurts because – you, I always identify with a lot of what Mark's doing. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Go to secretmovieclub.com to see our uh, burgeoning calendar of events for our fall season 2023. And uh, we really appreciate reviews. So whether it's a podcast review on Apple Pod or Spotify or a, a Yelp review or a Google review, 
Uh, everything helps. And if you have ideas on what we can be doing, what Secret Movie Club should be, how we can up our game, please write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. We, we read those emails every day, and we work to respond. And, uh, and there you go. Okay, moving on. So today I want to talk about uh, Saxon cinema, Saxon American cinema specifically, because actually Saxon cinema worldwide, it, it, it they're sort of different levels and gradations of comparing it. But actually, let me get my thesis out here. I want to talk about Saxon American cinema and the, the irony, maybe it's not even ironic uh, because, and I'll say this at the start, I think it's just axiomatic that uh, everything works in cycles, like the ebb and flow of the ocean. So it's not actually ironic or paradoxical that 50 years ago, American society and culture was at a point where sexuality was, people were more comfortable talking about it in public. People were more comfortable going to see movies with uh, graphic or intense sexuality and the pendulum swings. And so in 50 years, to me, unfortunately, we're now at a point where it really seems like filmmakers and mainstream American cinema is really uncomfortable with sex, doesn't even know really how to do it anymore. Uh, and I think that's having unfortunate effects all up and down uh, our society. Uh, and it, it, we're much more comfortable talking about murder and child murder and acts of bloodless violence that get PG-13s. And look, I'm not against violence in cinema either. I, I like action movies. But I really think there should be Saxon in American cinema. Uh, but I also think, and, and I'll talk about this, I also can see why uh, people struggle with it and how we've never really found a sustainable genre that um, could be entertaining uh, and work in mainstream American cinema. So we're going to we're going to look at that. But what I wanted to say as well was this is certainly not a problem <clears throat> all across the world. I lived in Prague when I was uh, 19, I believe. Was I 19? I was 19. And at 10 p.m., they would show uh, straight-up adult movies on a network Czech television. I still don't know what that was about. Uh, I was I, I don't think of myself uh, as a prude by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think of myself as a libertine either. But uh, even I was a little scandalized. I'd be talking to somebody in the lobby of our collet, which was the Czech dorm, and uh, at 10 o'clock, an adult film, and you'd be like, "What? what is that? You know, and you'd be like, oh, hey, there you go. So I don't know. Checks, maybe you can explain it to me. But in Europe, uh, specifically continental Europe, France, I, I feel France, Italy, Germany, uh, the Czech Republic, there, there's it feels to me a much healthier acceptance of sex and a much healthier um allowance for sex in cinema and television than there is in the United States at, at the same time. There are also parts of the world where it's much more severe than it is in the United States. Certainly, you can look at a lot of theocratic nations uh, around the world where no sexuality is allowed. And then, interestingly, in a country like India, uh, the sexuality in mainstream cinema still has to be sublimated in—I in, I always— uh, enjoy the creative workarounds in Indian cinema, but it is interesting. If, if you're, you're going to have 
sexuality in Indian cinema. Still, it's sort of sublimated in musical numbers and dance numbers where the uh, hot male lead and male female, the male lead and the female lead will dance in a waterfall and then they'll, their clothes will get all wet and you'll see the contours of their body and they'll be dancing with each other in a way that feels like a uh, approximation or a simulacrum of uh, the sexual act, but there's just enough plausible deniability that people could be like, that's a dance number. Uh, but, uh, and look, the no judgment there at all, but it's interesting to see and to acknowledge the spectrum of uh, how sexuality is dealt with in uh, cinema around the world. Uh, interestingly, at the tail end of the 1960s, we all know this story, the old Hayes Code for American movies was breaking up and had been really for a decade. Uh, people like Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho and other filmmakers, Otto Preminger in movies like The Man with the Golden Arm and Anatomy of a Murder, they were they were chipping away at the old Hayes Code, which had rules like you could you couldn't show people in the same bed. Uh, even if they were a married couple, they always had to have two like separate singles, uh, and uh, you know you couldn't have any profanity. And and in doing that, uh, the Hollywood industry wasn't constantly being attacked by the the moral and ethical finger waggers of puritanical American society. But the compromise was that anything risque or sexual had to come in through the side door and often did through really creative dialogue. Uh, I, I always point to people, there's a Marx Brothers uh, bit in Day at the Races where uh, Groucho is trying to wine and dine this woman he's in love with and unbeknownst to him, this woman is trying to get him in a compromising uh, position so that they can take a photo and blackmail him. And Harpo and Chico know this, so they come in and they sit on her lap. And I think Chico sits on her lap first and then Harpo sits on her lap and Harpo slaps his knee and looks at Groucho and Groucho without missing a beat looks at them, looks at Harpo and Chico on this woman's lap. And he says something like three men to a horse. Not for me. And I remember even when I saw it the first time and I was, I was, I was an adult, I think, but I laughed so hard and I couldn't believe that that line uh, had gotten by the censors. But I think that the censors let dialogue like that go because they, you know, it was a great laugh. It was a good joke. And uh, it was creative. Anyway, in the 60s, and we know the story that ultimately with movies like Bonnie and Clyde um, and actually I just thought of something else. And then really Midnight Cowboy, which was an X-rated movie. Uh, the old Hayes way of rating movies, it died. And so uh, the MPAA was formed and and they were going to give ratings. And the ratings at the time, I think, were G, I don't want to get this wrong, but essentially G, PG, R, and X. And what's interesting is that for a while, the X rating was meant, and it was always intended actually to function this way. It wasn't meant to stigmatize a movie. It was actually meant to allow uh, filmmakers to make movies for adults that clearly weren't appropriate for uh, in, in the eyes of the MPAA for people who were 17 years and younger. But if you were 18, I think, 17 or 18, uh, you were an adult. I mean, you could go fight in Vietnam and die in Vietnam. You certainly could go see a movie with sex. And uh, it was meant so that mainstream movies could be made with an X rating. And for a while, it worked. In 1969, uh, John Schlesinger's movie uh, written by Waldo Salt, Midnight Cowboy, 
uh, starring John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. A great movie. Got an X rating, and it won Best Picture. Won Best Picture. So, uh, it, and it's to this day the only movie that the only X rated film that won Best Picture. And if you see Midnight Cowboy, I think by today's standards. It's a, it's a bit tame. I, it's hard for me to understand in comparison now why it got slapped with the X. I mean, I get it. He, uh, John Voight plays a male hustler in New York. There's certainly sex scenes. Uh, there's certainly an adult take on sexuality in it. And Dustin Hoffman plays his ailing and sick consumptive pimp. At the same time, porno movies or stag films started to come out of the shadows a bit. Uh, prior to uh, the MPAA changing the rating, porno films and stag films, uh, for the most part, were exactly what they sound like. They're just sort of people having graphic sex and uh, <laughs> people watching it, basically. Uh, but uh, certainly not receiving any kind of mainstream approval or being reviewed by mainstream critics or anything like that. But after Midnight Cowboy and with uh, the opening up, I think, of America being more open to sexuality after the 60s, uh, porno films actually came into the mainstream in what's called the golden age of porno movies or porno chic and uh, movies like uh, Deep Throat, uh, The Devil and Miss Jones, um, I would, I don't I don't have a wonderful uh, encyclopedic knowledge of all the movies that were made, but I think uh, you know directors like Joe Sarno and Radley Metzger, uh, Russ Meyer. I, one of my favorite films of all time is the X-rated or NC-17 rated Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, written by Roger Ebert and made and released in 1970. Uh, so the culture, American culture, was was pretty uh, open to these kinds of movies. And as I said, Devil and Miss Jones, which is full of explicit sexuality, uh, definitely an X-rated movie. And definitely, whereas Midnight Cowboy would be a narrative film with intense sexual scenes, Devil and Miss Jones is a movie where the story is interesting, uh, Georgina Splevin's performance is usually considered probably the best performance ever uh, given a, a real performance. And she was an actor. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a, a number of sex scenes. So it, it feels more like a traditional porn film than a, a movie like Midnight Cowboy. But uh, Roger Ebert gave Devil and Miss Jones three stars. Uh, like I said, it made a ton, 15 million in 1973 is probably the equivalent of 100 to 200 million now. I mean, you know, I was just looking it up and, uh, you know, Devil and Miss Jones made the equivalent of what Dial of Destiny has made worldwide, just to put that into context. Um, nevertheless, uh, a few years after this, uh, the I think the MPAA felt that uh, the X rating was unfortunately being exploited by porn filmmakers. They, then porn filmmakers came up with triple X, which really wasn't a thing. But triple X meant, you know, even more racy and risque and graphic sex. And uh, so pretty soon movie theater chains got hip to this. Uh, and certainly there have always been uh, portions of the country that are very conservative, uh, morally very conservative, sexually. 
And, and, you know, for understandable and honorable reasons. Uh, you know, many people are deeply religious. Many people feel that sexuality really, it, it's, its expression needs to be in marriage. And whether you agree with that or not, there were theater chains that were owned by uh, conservative, religiously conservative people or that catered to the religiously conservative. And they, they just were not going to be showing X movies. They didn't need that uh, headache. They, they didn't agree with it. And pretty soon, uh, any movie with an X was going to have a hard time making its money back because so many movie chains decided just not to show it. And then with the dawn of video, porn movies, you've seen this sort of in Boogie Nights and in a few other uh, movies that deal with the adult film industry. Pretty soon, uh, with the dawn of video and VHS and video stores, it was just a more workable model to rent your porn uh, the budgets could be much, much lower. You didn't have to worry about theatrical distribution. And uh, you made your movie for much less. Then the internet came and it's gotten even you know, cheaper and you watch it on your phone. And, uh, and that's maybe a story for another time. What is unfortunate is that movies that could deal with sexuality uh, – and be entertaining and and create a genre the same way that we have noir or, I mean, l let's think of the genres right now, action movies, horror movies, sci-fi fantasy, superhero movies. I would argue that there's no reason we can't have adult sex movies. And my reasoning for this, and, and I say this, and I you've heard me say this before, but I, I just want to say it again, is I say this as a practicing Catholic who I'm going to out myself on this. I know I have many times, um, you know, and, and life is a continuum. I definitely spiritually am also very influenced by my Judaism, uh, Hinduism, Taoism, Zen Buddhism. I'm very, I've said many times, very spiritually promiscuous, but I am someone who believes in God. I am someone who considers himself a religious person. My family and I go to Mass every Sunday. Uh, I, I have been married once to my wonderful wife, Marta, you know, Knockwood. We have three children, a fourth on the way. And I would probably say that in my personal life, and I don't want to get out ahead of my skis here, but uh, I've never cheated on anybody. Um, I've always been, uh, I guess you'd, you'd sort of call it a serial monogamist. Um, when I'm in a relationship, that's I'm, I'm in it. Uh, and that's me. That's me. And I only say those things to give some context on where my head is at and how I've lived my life. That's also, I want to be clear, like I'm not also, I'm not the best looking person in the world. Uh, I have no idea if those things would be true if I look like Brad Pitt. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know the temptations. I certainly don't. I, you can only know your own sex drive. I have no idea what other people's sex drives are, understandings of sex. Nevertheless, I don't feel scandalized uh, in saying that I think there should be a, a, a sex genre, essentially. Uh, and I think it has been a huge miss opportunity. And I, I think that the problem in my argument would be that in not having an attitude in the United States that sex in movies is, is okay and fine, uh, you people find a way to find this. And like I said, a lot of people, because 
they're d- developing sexual feelings and trying to figure out who they are and what their sexuality is and uh, how they can express themselves sexually because sexual expression is such a, a key component not only of identity but how you communicate with other people. Uh, then they end up, uh, you know, whether it's magazine, not magazines, it could dates me, <laughs> but you know, you're going to look for it on, on your phone and, um, the stuff you're going to find on your phone, uh, certainly I'm not going to stigmatize it at all. And thank God you can find people having sex on your phone and try to figure out who you are and what you like and all that. But, um, it, it tends to silo the conversation, I think, and it tends to, um, maybe make people think that this is, and this has always been a problem in American society, that this is something you've got to figure out in the shadows and on your own and uh, in the dark. Uh, and, you know, certainly we all, many of us talk about sex with our friends and talk about our sexual relationships. And I don't mean to, to imply that those conversations don't happen in healthy ways among friends and family. They do, obviously. Uh, they did in my family, and I'm, I'm sure they do in a lot of families and, and among groups of friends. But I think it would be helpful, uh, you know, if American cinema could take the lead here and show some leadership uh, and, and make more uh, great movies with sexuality in them. I did want to talk about a little bit the history of, of some of the more interesting attempts. And there have been uh, many interesting movies. Uh, John Waters' Pink Flamingos. Now, that's a movie where, uh, if you've never seen it, it has a, a very famous scene where a guy <laughs> sings a song with his sphincter. Uh, and then Divine, at the end of the movie, uh, eats dog excrement. Uh, I'm almost about to gag even thinking about it. But, and it's definitely Pink Flamingos, I think, was meant to be a transgressive movie to shock, uh, shock people in, a, in actually a great way. I mean, John Waters, I was talking to my friend Andrew Groves about this. John Waters has become one of our greatest per, um, rock on tours and ambassadors of movie love. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, he clearly is a teddy bear of a man in some ways uh, and uh, a sweetheart. Uh, but he recognized that it sometimes it's good to be transgressive. Sometimes it's good to shock. Uh, there are movies like in the 80s, um, the Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which was given in NC-17. The, the textbook, the dictionary definition of an art movie, uh, this movie has Michael Gambon, rest in peace, he just passed, uh, and, and Helen Mirren. Um, it's a, it's a great movie. I love this movie. It's definitely an art film. I mean, it's got these long tracking shots. Everything is color coded. There's like a kid who sings angelic choir songs in the kitchen. Uh, it, it's a very arch film in its formalism and its style. But nevertheless, uh, there are some beautifully shot sex scenes in it. And uh, there is sexuality. And it's, it's a great movie. It's one of Peter Greenaway's best. Uh, there's also in the eighties, another movie that I love, uh, Philip Kaufman's unbearable lightness of being starring Daniel day Lewis and, um, uh, Juliette Binoche and Lena Olin. Uh, it, it's based on a Czech novel, uh, by Milan Kundera. It was shot in Prague, I believe, and, uh, shot the cinematography is by the great Sven Nykvist, Bergman cinematographer. Uh, and, it, it deals with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays a doctor uh, in the 1960s in the Czech Republic, and he's a womanizer. He loves women, but he falls in love with Juliette Binoche, but he 
continues to womanize and it puts a great strain on the relationship. And at the same time, the Czech Republic is coming out of uh, an oppressive period under communist rule. And there's a moment where it looks like they're going to break free of it during the the Prague Spring. And then uh, there's a, a horrible uh, tightening of communist uh, control again and everything shuts down. And so the sexuality of the story mirrors the history of what's going on. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, one of my favorite films of the 80s, and uh, I, I'm going to show it here. And one of the lessons I think that Unbearable Lightness of Being shows, as I would argue most great movies with sex do show, is the sex in the film and the sex scenes further the story. One of the things I've often joked about or talked about with people, it's only a half joke really, is uh, the reason that I, I think that most sex movies just don't work uh, is because actually they uh, they don't follow a key rule of filmmaking, which is I think filmmaking uh, should never be boring. Uh, and it, you know, again, there's all bunch of there are whole all sorts of ways of making a movie. So I don't, you know, and I we just showed Satan Tango, uh, Bellatar's Satan Tango, uh, one of the masterpieces of slow cinema, eight hours long. Uh, shots that sequences that'll go on for 10, 20 minutes of just people dancing. Uh, I love that kind of filmmaking. So I never want to be misunderstood. But I would say in American cinema and in a certain strain of storytelling, uh, you always want to keep the story moving. The Every scene, something should change in the story. Uh, something should be revealed. Your characters should be going up. They should be going down. I, I hate to be speaking in these bromides, but there are they're just fundamentals of good storytelling that that storytellers know. And the interesting thing about uh, movies with a lot, a lot of sex, or that are trying to be, you know, shocking, or we're like we're an adult movie with adult sexuality, is the sex scenes stop the storytelling in its tracks. And that's like, a, you know, that, that, that's like a bad musical. That's a, a bad dance number. A good dance number, a good musical number, uh, the characters in the story should be somewhere when that musical number or dance number starts. And at the end of that dance number, musical number, the story should be in a different place. The characters should be in a different place. Stephen Sondheim is proving this and knows it and talks about it when he tries to talk to people about musicals. Um, you know, anybody who does a musical knows that. And I actually think weirdly that's what needs to happen in movies with sex is if you're going to have a sex scene uh, where your characters are at the beginning, they need to be in a different place at the end. Uh, and as long as something's getting revealed or your characters are learning something, I actually think the sexing can be dynamic uh, rather than uh, stopping things in their track. Because I think weirdly when you watch uh, pornos or you watch movies with adult sexuality, they, they almost seem to be about <laughs> their idea of progression is first it's two people and then it's three people and then it's an orgy or whatever. Uh, and I guess that's one way it's like action sequences, but I actually think that when you miss the underlying fundamentals of storytelling, this is what makes them, uh, not, this is why the genre has maybe never flourished. So the MPA decided, okay, the X has just gotten mired in uh, association with pornos. Let's create the NC-17, and maybe movie chains will show these movies again. And like it was supposed to do with the X, the NC-17 will create 
the uh, space to have an adult genre of adult films. And there were a number of movies that either got the NC-17 or came out unrated in the 90s that are dynamite movies. Uh, You might even argue there was a mini renaissance of the NC-17 in the 90s, which I didn't put together until I researched uh, this podcast. Movies like Pedro Almodovar's um, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, uh, Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant with uh, Harvey Keitel, David Cronenberg's Crash, All these movies got NC-17s and are amazing films. Uh, And then in the 19 uh, and then in the 2000s, Pedro Almodovar would make movies in the late 1990s like Live Flesh and Bad Education, which are some of the great movies. uh, And they got NC-17. So certainly. uh, And then um, Alfonso Cuaron made E2 Mom and Tambien, one of my favorite movies of the early 2000s. Uh, also with, with sexuality, where the sex scenes advance the story. In fact, I'd really point to E2 Mama Tambien, Alfonso Cuaron's E2 Mama Tambien, which ultimately is a movie about uh, two best friends. One is working class, one is very well off, who fall in love, uh, fall in lust more, with uh, the wife of the rich friend's uh, cousin. And they invite her on a road trip, and she miraculously accepts and she has her motives for it, uh, played by the great Maribel Verdu. And uh, they both, the, the two friends, played by Gael Garcia Bernal and um, Diego Luna, they both want to sleep with her. And uh, this conflict and this tension uh, between all of them ultimately creates all these interesting dynamics on the road trip and their sex scenes, and the sex scenes advance the story. And I think Alfonso Cuaron clearly understood and he wrote the, the, the screenplay with his brother, Carlos Cuaron. The, the two of them clearly understood uh, that uh, the sex scenes needed to advance the story. And I think that E2 Mama Tambien plays as this amazing mix of uh, everything that's great about the French New Wave and French New Wave filmmaking, and then the way that Alfonso Cuaron tells stories, uh, which I love. He's one of my favorite working living directors. Uh, moving from there, uh, there, you know, more recently, and it's fascinating because I think Steven Spielberg was the president of this jury, but uh, the movie Blue is the Warmest Color, the, two, the, the 2013 film, uh, which won uh, the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and is about uh, a lesbian relationship. I I really do like the film. Um, and when I saw it, I really liked it. But I did have a problem, and I you've probably heard this critique of the film. Uh, I actually had a problem with the sex scenes. Uh, there are two, I think, two sex scenes in the film that go on for a long, long time. And uh, this might sound paradoxical because I'm, I'm recording this podcast about how I think there should be uh, an embrace of sex and cinema. But I, I, nevertheless, I, you know, like anything, uh, I love action movies. But if there was a scene where a dude or anybody just gets shot for four minutes and it just slaughter and at a certain point I'd be like, too much. This feels gratuitous. Uh, and I would say the same about a horror movie. I love great gore. I'm a big fan of Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, Dead Alive, one of the goriest movies ever. But Brain Dead, Dead Alive is like one of the greatest horror comedies ever. Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 1 and 2. I love those movies filled with gore. But again, there are some movies where the gore just goes on and on and on. And it becomes something gratuitous to me. Exploitational in the, the negative sense of that word. And when I saw Blue is the Warmest Color as a movie... I think uh, I could totally, what I loved was I totally related to the relationship in it. I had been in relationships like that myself in my own, you know, 
cisgender hetero male way with uh, with uh, my my girlfriends, uh, and I think it captured the universality and the humanity of these relationships you have in your twenties that are intense. Uh, you're sexually coming into comfort with who you are. You they're often the first relationships where you tell someone you love them, uh, and even though they they usually end uh, in a breakup, they they are relationships you think about the rest of your life. And blue is the warmest color is about one of those relationships, and it's it's great. But there are two sex scenes that go on for like five minutes, and it starts to feel like the male director. It's just one of those things where the camera. <laughs> Uh, is on some kind of gimbal and it moves up the writhing bodies and then it kind of comes around and the bodies are still writhing and then there's oral sex and then there's sex and then there's this and then it moves around again and you know look uh, God willing everybody if they want it can have a, a, a sexual experience that goes on for longer than two minutes uh, and and maybe you know I can't, maybe the director wanted to imply that but you, you, as a as a audience member I remember when I saw that movie uh, at like the two minute mark or the three minute mark of the sex scene I thought great got it I would have cut here just from a purely technical. <laughs> Uh, storytelling thing. If I was the editor, I'd be like, hey, you got it. We, we got the story point. Uh, they're discovering each other. They're coming into their own sexually. Uh, they're uh, like having orgasms. All this stuff should be in the movie. But we got it. We don't need three more minutes because I, I did start to feel then uh, it moved backwards. It actually was uh, uh, defeating its own point. So now we're, you know, fast forward to 2023 and, you know, in 1973, one of the top 10 grossing movies was The Devil and Miss Jones, an X-rated film. And here are the top 10 rated movie or the top 10 grossing movies so far of 2023. Barbie, Super Mario Brothers, Oppenheimer, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Fast X, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Little Mermaid, the live action remake, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. Uh, part one, Elemental, and Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Uh, and then number 11, I'm just looking, is Transformers, Rise of the Beast. 12 is John Wick, Chapter 4. 13 is Meg 2, The Trench. 14 is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. 15 is Creed 3, and on and on and on. None of those movies. Uh, Oppenheimer, actually, let me take that back. Oppenheimer has uh, some R-rated, candid sexuality. So that's, uh, that. you know, I was about to say none of them do, but Oppenheimer clearly does. And um, that's maybe a sign of a good thing that the number three rated movie or the number three highest grossing film in the world, it's almost at a billion dollars, uh, has some pretty candid sexuality in it. So maybe we're we're starting to see the pendulum uh, swing back. Uh, I, I, so I, you know, I, I will end there uh, and just finish by saying that, uh, all of that is to, to again, come back to the thesis at the beginning, which is I would argue it is in our best interest as movie makers, as moviegoers, as a culture, as a society. I think it would be better if my children saw more sexuality, uh, had more open conversations about sexuality, because ultimately this is the reason for existence. You know, at least so far, I mean, I, I know we're, we're at the point where babies can be created and, you know, who knows what the future holds in terms of how babies are made. But 
up until this point, babies are made uh, often uh, through the sex act, through having sex. And uh, that's why all of us and humanity has existed and society has existed. And there's something troubling to me to be in a society that is numb and accepting of school shootings and uh, really up in arms and scandalized by sex. Uh, you know, if, if America is going to get healthier as a society, I do think we got to relook at those values and relook at what's uh, acceptable in the public conversation, what's unacceptable in public conversation. Uh, and I, th- I think it would behoove us to be okay being a little more comfortable talking sex and cinema and making movies with sex and cinema. And I would love to make some movies that that somehow show that this could be possible. Okay, there you go. Thank you guys for listening. As always, uh, you can find out everything that we do uh, at secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite, follow us to find out about new events. Uh, tonight, we're going to be doing The Skin I Live In, a movie, actually. Uh, I don't know if it's rated R or NC-17, but it does have some pretty sexually explicit scenes. And as most Almodovar movies or many Almodovar movies do, uh, and the uh, it's on 35mm. We'd love to have you. Uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on sex and cinema uh, and what you think. And, uh, and there you go. So thank you for listening. Next week, Secret Movie Club Podcast 157. I'm hoping that uh, we'll mostly be reassembled. I have to uh, sort of figure out when we can all get together and start recording again. There may be one or two more pods where it's me. I hope not, though. I prefer the conversation. So uh, very shortly, you're going to have uh, the conversation again. And, uh, and that's it. Thank you for listening. And I love you, family.